That's the title of today's message, In Good Hands. By the way, this is not an Allstate commercial this morning. What we're talking about is the hands of a great God, the potter's hands. We'll never answer every question regarding God's calling and election and man's free will. But despite that, we need to know how to respond to God. That's a very important understanding. And we must remember that we need to trust him and surrender ourselves to him. After all, we are in good hands. And so the scripture this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 19 to 29. You can follow along with me as I read, either in your Bible or your um, iPhones, or if you brought your entire computer components with you, you can follow along there. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, quote, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Shabbat had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. You know, Romans 9 may raise more questions than answers for us. Even the Apostle Peter, when referring to the scriptures and the letters written by Paul, recognized that his words were sometimes difficult to comprehend. We read in 2 Peter 3.16, quote, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So let's state right up front that there are some hard things to understand in the Bible, like predestination. Here are three passages to consider. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Romans 8.29, Romans, Ephesians rather, 1.5. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Yeshua Messiah. And Ephesians 1.11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined. Predestined. Predestination. The word predestination, by the way, is composed of two parts. Did you know that? Pre, meaning before, and destination, 
meaning a point of final arrival. You see, God chose us long before we chose him, yet he also looked into the future and knew how we would respond to his love for us. And if you think about this doctrine for a while, well, then you're going to have to face some difficult questions. How does predestination affect human responsibility? Are we just robots doing what God has ordained? If only certain people are predestined to heaven, then why bother with outreach? And how can people be guilty of sin since they're only doing what they were predestined to do? Now, this topic, predestination, has caused friendships to fracture, congregations to split, and it's divided believers into different doctrinal groups. So, here are a couple of things I hope we can all agree on. One, God is completely sovereign. Am I in the right place? There we go. And two, we're responsible for our response to him. You can find both of these truths in the Bible, by the way. We could say that Romans 9 emphasizes the sovereignty of God, while Romans 10 provides the framework for human responsibility, but Paul doesn't seek to relieve the tension. He doesn't fully explain the working out of election and responsibility in this chapter because here, I believe, he's more interested in addressing the heart that dares to address and question God. You see, election and responsibility are taught by Yeshua. John six thirty seven. quote, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's divine election. And whoever comes to me, that's human response, I will never drive away. And here are two verses from Acts where these two friends are found. Acts 13, 39. Through him, everyone who believes is, that's human response, justified. And verse 48. And all were appointed, that's divine election, for eternal life. All who were appointed believed. So what do we do with these two amazing truths? How do we deal with the tension that seems to exist between them? Well, it's not likely that you will get every question answered regarding God's calling and election and man's free will. But how you respond to God is the important point. We should rejoice that we are chosen by God and should make choices that are in agreement with the new life we have in Yeshua. So with that as a preview of our passage, again, let's look at it. And notice that there are seven different questions listed in Romans 9, 19 to 24. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purses and some for common use? What if God choosing to, I ran out of fingers. What if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And the seventh, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. You see, while Paul doesn't specifically answer each of these questions, 
there are at least three answers that are given that tell us what God is up to in his dealings with mankind. First, God designs each of us with purpose. That's found in verses 19 to 21. And so let's look at what's behind Romans 9, 19. Quote, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? The word then goes back to the question about Pharaoh. Specifically, when Moses wanted to go, Pharaoh said no. And since Pharaoh was hardened, and verse 18 states, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, then why are we blamed for our behavior? I mean, if we are simply playing the roles God has for us in the outworking of his will, how can God judge us for resisting his will? Well, Paul takes issue with the attitude behind the two questions in verse 19. And so this is his reply in verse 20. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? The phrase talk back literally means to answer to one's face or to be against and away from. You see, Paul is putting this person, if you will, in his place. But it's not the fact that a question is asked. It's the attitude behind the question that is inappropriate. Dear ones, it's not wrong to ask questions of God, but we can't presume to correct him. Remember what God said in Job chapter 38, verses 2 and 3. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall question me. And Job is put in his place. Chapter 40, verse 2. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And personally, I love how Job Job responds in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 40. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. You see, when God declares his will... We should listen and be still. That's hard for us, I know, because many of us want to have the last word with God, don't we? You see, pulling together passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Paul shows that as creator, God has absolute rights of ownership. And no one is a shoe-in when it comes to salvation, neither Jew nor Gentile. The creator, the God of the universe, can do what he wants with the created. Quote, Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? And so expanding on the analogy of the potter and the clay, Paul describes the absurdity of a piece of pottery complaining to the potter. Does not the potter, he writes, have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purses and some for common use? And dear one, whether you like it or not, you and I are clay. And clay has no right to complain. Clay has no qualifications or credentials to talk back to God. God can take and make pretty pottery, and God can also turn the clay into something common and ordinary. The point is that the creator can do whatever he wants with that which he has created. And for us to completely understand God, well, you know what that would take? It would take us to be equal with him. That is, the lump of clay would have to be equal with the potter. 
Genesis 2.7. It says that we are formed from the dust of the ground, but we're designed with a purpose. Designed with a purpose. And Paul's reader would have known that the image of the potter and the clay typically referred to God and Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. And keeping the larger context of Romans in mind, Paul is speaking about Israel and her failure to accept Yeshua as her Messiah. But the same lump of clay, dear ones, I believe represents humanity as a whole. If God only wants to save a remnant and the Creator wants to add a bunch of Gentile pottery, isn't that his right? God always delays punishment. Romans 9, 22 to 23. God designs with a purpose, and he also delays punishment to some in order to show his mercy to others. So let's look at verses 22 and 30. Quote, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Now, I want you to take note of the two uses of the phrase, what if. You see, Paul is introducing two categories of people here. And the Bible often uses extreme terms to separate people into distinct groups or categories. The saved and the lost, the children of God and the children of Satan, light and darkness. And here he uses two descriptive categories, object of his wrath and objects of his mercy. So let's look at each one. Objects of his wrath. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Now, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but we need to. Why? Because the Bible talks about it. Now, I know the wrath of God is not a very popular concept in modern liberal churches. But here's the problem with modern liberal churches. They sing, come just as you are, and then you leave just as you were. I want you to notice that God, quote, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Dear ones, God is patient, and his divine delay in delivering justice is that so people will repent and receive his salvation. This is clearly spelled out. 2 Peter 3.9, quote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, please listen, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Dear ones, we all deserve the wrath of God. But there's a way out. Somebody say amen. You see, people prepare themselves for destruction because of their sins. It's not that God makes people sinful, but he leaves them in their sin unless they repent and receive his son. You see, if people resist and reject God, they end up preparing their own destruction. And if during the time of divine delay an individual repents and receives salvation, he or she then becomes an object of mercy and not an object of wrath. Ezekiel 18.32, quote, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. What about objects of mercy? Here's a neat thought. 
God gets the glory either way. He even uses Israel's unbelief to further his purposes. In actuality, he uses all circumstances to promote his glory. Verse 23, quote, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Now, the grammar here is interesting because, you see, we don't prepare ourselves for glory. We are prepared in advance for glory by God. And so the question is, which group are you in today? You are either an object of wrath prepared for destruction or you're an object of mercy prepared in advance for his glory. Not everyone, dear ones, is going to heaven. Left to ourselves, we'll all go to hell. No one deserves heaven in and of themselves. If we go there, it's because someone else paid the price of admission. And mercy means accepting something you don't deserve. You see, God is delaying his judgment so that we will repent and receive salvation. But he will not wait forever. Next, God determines to show us his mercy. Verses 24 to 29, God designs with purpose, and second, he delays punishment, but finally, he does all this because he determines to show mercy. Verse 24 states that God does this among the Jews and the Gentiles, quote, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is showing that salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And he's also reminding us and reminding his readers that God has always called out a remnant from the Jews. Today, there are approximately 15 million Jews in the world out of a total population of about 7 billion people. And if God had said, I'm only going to the Jews... Well, he would still be fair because no one deserves to be saved. But he didn't do that. Amen? Instead, he opened the door of salvation to everyone. But he did so by first offering it to the Jews. Will there be any Jewish people in heaven? You bet. But not every Jewish person goes to heaven. Will there be any Gentiles in heaven? Absolutely. But not every Gentile goes to heaven. You see, the only way there is through faith. Faith in Yeshua. And so, quoting from two Old Testament prophets, Paul builds the case for God's mercy. And using words first from the prophet Hosea, Paul says in verses 25 and 26, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. I believe this shows that it's not a new thing for God to add Gentiles to his family. And notice the phrase, I will call, repeated twice, and that these former pagans are called sons of the living God. And not only will Gentiles become full members of God's family, but many Jews are going to be left out. Drawing from Isaiah, Verses 27, 28, and 29, Paul summarizes that those Jews who respond in faith become part of the remnant. Quote, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, quote, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Unfortunately, true believers are always a minority. And Paul is reminding those with a Jewish background that they might not make it in and that they had better repent quickly if they want to be part of the remnant because God is carrying out his sentence with, quote, speed and finality, just like he did with Sodom, just like he did with Gomorrah. The destruction will be total and only a handful will be saved. But there is divine election and human responsibility. So I want to go back to a statement I made at the beginning. God is completely sovereign, and we are responsible for our purpose, our response to him. God is completely sovereign. Salvation comes from God, not us. And when we recognize that God chose us for salvation, well, what that means is we can never, ever claim credit for it. We don't even get points for seeking the Lord. You know why? Because he sought us before we ever sought him. Now, that is not to say that God arbitrarily selected a few of his favorite people and condemned the rest of mankind to burn in an eternal hell. We were all created to do life with God. But many will reject God's calling to do just that. God has a plan and is in control, but he does include the human will in that equation. So what does that mean? I'm responsible to respond. Someone may say, quote, why should I bother responding? If I'm predestined, God will save me when he's ready. The Bible says that God saves those who place their faith in Yeshua Mashiach. Period. Henry Ward Beecher, he was an amazing preacher and writer back in the 1800s. He used to say that the elect were the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. And if you're wondering whether God has predestined you to salvation, then just answer this question. Have you ever placed your faith in the Messiah Yeshua and in him alone for your salvation? If the answer is yes, then you're predestined for heaven. But what if the answer is no? Or what if the answer is, I'm not sure? Well, one reason God has delayed his punishment is to give you more time to decide. And if you go to hell, it won't be God's fault. He's done everything necessary to make sure that you go to heaven. So here are two points to help us resolve, or at least live with this tension. First, from our human standpoint, we are completely free. Am I on the right one here? Here we go. We are completely free. When you wake up in the morning, you got a choice to get out of bed or stay in bed. You can wear shorts or pants. When you get in your car, you're free to drive to work, or you can head to the border if you're Tanksville. Every decision you make is a free choice, which leads to the second point. Predestination simply means God chose you first, and if he didn't choose you first, you would have never chosen him. Our choice is a free choice, but it's made possible only by God's Spirit enabling us to believe and be saved. No one has to have hell as a final eternal destination. 
And whoever goes there, it will be because they are deserving of God's judgment. How do you know if God is calling you? If you have the slightest desire, then God is calling you. And if you want to be saved, then Yeshua is calling you to follow him as well. And if you want to be saved, you can be saved. That's the promise of God to you and to me. No one will be lost who turns completely to Messiah for salvation. No one will be in hell who truly wanted to go to heaven by trusting in Yeshua Mashiach. I can only think of one place in the Bible, one place in the Bible, where someone cried out for mercy and was turned down. Every other time when someone wanted mercy, they received it. The only time it didn't come was when it was too late. Luke 16, 19 to 31, a rich man dies. He's in incredible agony. Listen to verses 23 and 24. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, for I am in agony in this flame. But his request was denied. Why? Because the deadline had already passed. Dear one, it's too late to ask for mercy after you've already died. And I believe, actually I know, that we are all responsible to tell others the same story. We ought to inscribe on our heart these words. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed to tell someone I'm a believer. I am not ashamed to tell them that the good news is good news because the other news is incredibly bad news. I am not ashamed to risk being rejected by sharing life with someone else. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some believers, unfortunately, have decided not to be involved in outreach and evangelism because they falsely believe that God will save who he wants to save without any help from us. Dear ones, nothing could be biblically more wrong. Romans 10 is the corrective for that type of reasoning. Romans 10, 13 to 15, quote, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Preaching simply means proclaiming God's free gift of eternal life. We can all do that. Eternal life with him through Yeshua. You don't have to pound a pulpit in order to do that. Just live for him and tell others about him. It's not that hard. And just a final thought. I think you need to give your life to the potter's hand. No matter what shape he's molding you in today. You don't have to have God figured out before you can follow him in faith. 
The key question is this. Have you given your life to the potter's hand? Have you surrendered yourself to the one who made you and the one who loves you? And so as I close this morning, we're going to watch a video. And as we do, I want you to ask yourselves this question. Have I given my life to the potter's hand? Let's watch. Teach me, dear Lord, to live all of my life through your eyes. I'm captured by your holy calling. Set me apart. I know you're drawing me to yourself. Take me, mold me, use me, fill me. I give my life to the potter's hand. Does anybody know the fact that molding yields friction? You ever seen a potter working on a wheel? You ever seen a potter working on a wheel when a fly or a mosquito flies by and gets stuck into the clay? You know what he does? He strips that part away. I would ask you this question this morning. What flies or mosquitoes have gotten into your clay that God has to strip away? Don't be mad at him because he's molding you to something better. And molding causes friction. Molding causes heat. And we say, but God, that's not fair. R.C. Sproul once told this story. He was teaching at a seminary, and he gave strict instructions at the beginning of the semester as to when papers would be due and when assignments would be due. And the first date came, and there were about 25% of his students who didn't have the assignment ready on time. And he said, it's okay. Let me exhibit some grace and mercy. Turn it in next week. And then the second assignment came due a month later. And now 50% of the students didn't have it on time. And he said the same thing. It's okay. I want to show you mercy and grace. Turn it in next week. The final assignment came due. And over half the class didn't have it done. And he said, you all get an F. What, Dr. Sproul, they said? We get an F? That's not fair. To which he said, you want fair? You get an F for the first assignment and the second assignment too. Our God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Please listen. There is a final exam. There is a final exam. And unless you've turned in your assignment for that exam, and you know what the assignment is? Scripture calls it the works of God. Do you know what the works of God are? To believe in him whom God sent. That's the final exam answer. I hope that everyone here can give that answer. Amen. Let's pray. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King.
our potter in heaven. Life's not fair, but that's okay because you are righteous and just. Life's not easy, but that's okay because you mold and shape so that we can be conformed to the image of your son. And life is short, at least on this earth. May we make the right choice so that our eternal life is with you and not without you. And all these things I pray in Yeshua's name.